invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Continuing our study of redemption accomplished and applied, and we are now in the uh, 12th lesson, which I don't believe in, includes the, the excursus we took at the very beginning of this session when we considered, um, I think we did two sessions on John 3.16, putting it in context and looking at the, the word study there of cosmos in John's gospel, if you remember that, several months ago. But in, as far as redemption accomplished and applied, we've done 12 sessions, and we are well into the application portion. And as you can see on our board here, we are nearing the end. The finish line is in sight. So well, we're going to consider tonight the subject or the topic of sanctification. And I want to begin by reading to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll read the first eight verses to you. Paul says to the church of Thessalonica, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness, or but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. In the last few sessions of this study, we have considered acts in the Ordo Salutis that are separated logically, but not chronologically. And I think I've belabored that theological point uh, over and over again, just simply proving that uh, there are some acts in the Ordo Salutis that are separated logically, but they're not distinguished by time. There's, there's a theological order, but there's not a chronological order. And of course, we're referring to effectual calling and regeneration and conversion, justification and adoption. There is a theological order, namely that in order for someone to believe and repent, they must be first regenerated. In order for someone to be justified, they must believe uh, in order for someone to be adopted, they must be justified. But nevertheless, all of these acts happen in the same chronological moment, in the same uh, moment in time. These are what we would call punctiliar occurrences. That word punctiliar simply means that they are once and for all events. They are not processes. They're, they're, justification is not a process. Regeneration is not a process. It is a performed and completed event. However, sanctification must be understood differently. When we talk about sanctification, we are moving into something that is progressive, something that is not necessarily punctiliar. However, I want to, by way of introduction, just uh, make you aware of the fact that there are uh, two 
kinds of sanctification, or we could say two act, uh, aspects of sanctification. Uh, because what does it mean to be sanctified? Well, to be sanctified literally means, in its most simplest definition, to be set apart. To be set apart. More specifically, to be set apart unto holiness. That's what sanctification means. And there are two types or two phases of sanctification in the application of redemption. There is sanctification that is definitive, definitive sanctification. And it means just what it, what it appears to mean. <laughs> that, that is, there's a definitive moment in time in which God sets you apart unto holiness as his child, as his redeemed being. And this act of sanctification, this work of sanctification, is complete and final and is um, concurrent with your justification. Okay, so you could ask it this way, when did your sanctification begin? Well, it began the moment you were justified. God doesn't save you one day and then let you go on living a life of immorality and then five years down the road he says, well, now I think it's about time I start to sanctify you. No, your sanctification begins as soon as you are converted. This is definitive sanctification and it's important that you understand that aspect of sanctification you could almost say that there's a third one and that that is that there's a sense in which you were set apart even before the foundation of the world right uh, but when we talk about the ordo salutis we want to primarily think of things that happen to us in time as our redemption is applied so there is definitive sanctification but when we talk about sanctification most of the time we are referring to progressive sanctification Progressive, I think there's just one G in progressive. Progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And progressive sanctification is the ongoing, continual aspect of sanctification that lasts throughout the entirety of the Christian life. And it is this aspect of sanctification that makes it unique in the Ordo Salutis. Whereas there is a specific moment in time in which a person is regenerated and justified, sanctification is something that continues all throughout the life of the believer. It's progressive. Not only does it continue, but it grows. It enlarges. There's a, there's a progress that is taking place. And so as we define the doctrine of sanctification, we must do it with both aspects of sanctification in mind, both definitive and progressive, but specifically, we want to make sure that we understand this progressive nature of sanctification and how it differs from the other acts in the Ordo. Because of this progressive nature of sanctification, Scripture has a lot to say about it. Uh, it makes sense that sanctification would be referred to often in our Bibles because it's a present, everyday, ongoing reality uh, that, that, that we live in as Christians. But my aim is, is not to be exhaustive. You understand that uh, sanctification could be treated over many, many sessions. Uh, but what I want to do is to simply present an overview of this doctrine as, as John Murray presents it to us in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And so uh, I'm going to follow the outline that he employs in his chapter on sanctification. But in order to do some justice to this study, I'm going to be dividing that up into two sessions. Conveniently, he gives us four main headings, 
when he deals with sanctification. And so I'll, I'll look at the first two tonight, and then uh, next time we meet together to study this topic, we'll look at the next two headings. So tonight, we want to focus in, first and foremost, on the presuppositions of sanctification. The presuppositions of sanctification. And uh, by that, what we mean by the presuppositions of sanctification we are referring to the doctrines and the realities that we must grasp before we can rightly understand sanctification. That's what we mean when we talk about the presuppositions of sanctification. And you must understand that none of these acts in the Ordo Salutis, whether it's effectual calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, None of these acts can be rightly understood apart from the others. But this is especially true concerning sanctification. It's especially true concerning sanctification. And, and, and let me flesh that out for you. Why is that especially true concerning sanctification? Well, because the obvious presuppositions to sanctification are what? Well, the acts that precede it. Not only must you understand these acts in order to understand sanctification, but you must understand that these acts have already been applied before sanctification. Many errors in sanctification are rooted in fundamental misunderstandings of regeneration and justification. If you don't understand justification, you will not understand sanctification. If you don't understand what it means for a person to be justified, you will not understand what it means for them to be sanctified. You will never have a biblical doctrine of sanctification unless you first understand that sanctification is built upon and undergirded by justification. Let me, let me state it very simply. Sanctification is what? Well, it's the process whereby God grows us in practical holiness and puts to death our sins. That's what sanctification is. But the only people who partake in that process are those who are already positionally holy by the merits of Jesus Christ. And that, that, that is so fundamental. That is so crucial to understanding sanctification. God does not sanctify lost people. Nor does he sanctify his enemies. You might find a lost person that uh, through just secular, natural process um, quits doing some sin and, and, and forsakes it, but does some other sin that in our eyes doesn't seem as bad. Well, uh, that's good, but it's not sanctification. He's not being sanctified. God sanctifies those who have already been made right with him through justification. Now, when we talked about justification, we stressed what? We stressed the fact that justification is a declaration, that there is no change actually being wrought within you when God justifies you. That all, all what, I don't want to say all justification is, because that sounds like I'm minimizing it, but what justification is, is it's a declaration that you are positionally righteous in Christ, okay? So when we talk about sanctification, we're, we're not stressing the opposite, but we're stressing something that's parallel, and that is we're stressing that sanctification is not just a declaration. It is a change, but it's a change that only occurs in those who've already been declared righteous. 
To state this truth another way, we've, we've established that sanctification is the process by which God makes us holy, but how does God make us holy? Well, he makes us holy through the mortification of the sin that remains in us after he saves us. God makes us holy by putting our indwelling sin to death. Now think about this. The only indwelling sin that can be conquered in the Christian life is a forgiven sin. You don't overcome the sins that still have the power over your members, that still have dominion over you. The only sins that you overcome practically in the Christian life are forgiven sins that have already been paid for, that have already been atoned for, that have already been removed in the sense of they no longer condemn you. If you are not in a right relationship with God through justification, you have no hope of ever having the victory over sin in your life through sanctification. But if you do have a right standing with God through justification, He will see to it that you also have the victory over those sins through sanctification. You must form your understanding of sanctification with the reality that the person being sanctified is a person who has already been made right with God. The dominion of sin has been destroyed. The victory has already been won. Yes, sanctification is a battle, but it is a battle that we fight from the position of a victory that has already been secured for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. He has already redeemed us from the penalty of sin, and He has given us the Holy Spirit who now redeems us from the power of sin. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And let me read uh, three verses of Romans chapter 6 and show you this truth that sanctification is based upon and undergirded by justification. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, the Bible says this, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Verse 13, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, those are imperatives. Those are commands. They are the commands of sanctification. Paul is saying here, uh, don't let sin reign in your body. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present your members, that's your physical body, your, and not just your physical body, but your, your mind and your heart, presented as, a, as members of righteousness. Those are commands. But notice that these imperatives are grounded in the indicative of verse 14. He says in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's not a command. That, that's a statement of fact. That's a statement of fact uh, concerning your justification. Paul is not saying, don't let sin have dominion over you in verse 14. He, he's saying, sin doesn't have dominion over you. And the only people that will obey the commands of verses 12 and 13 to not let sin reign in their mortal bodies are the people about whom verse 14 is true, that they are not under the dominion of sin. 
you're under the dominion of sin, you can't present your bodies as members of righteousness. The only people that can present their members, uh, their body as members of righteousness are those over whom sin does not have dominion. So we are being made practically holy and righteous. Why? Because we are already positionally holy and righteous. When this relationship between justification and sanctification is misunderstood, there are two chief errors that arise in our theology. There's really uh, many, many errors, but I'm going to give you two of them that are on the opposite extremes, and everything in between is true as well. What, What errors? If you confuse this relationship between justification and sanctification, what errors do you think might be committed? Well, number one, a works-based salvation in which our growth in holiness and war against sin is the means through which we earn our salvation and make ourselves right with God. Is that not a prevalent belief among so many who profess the name of Christ? They think that that their war against sin, their, their attempts to be righteous, that's the basis upon which God receives them or, or they are made right with God. But no, the Bible teaches that that war against sin is, it cannot be the basis. For many, many reasons, it cannot be the basis that we're right with God. Why? Because sanctification is not justification. The only righteousness, we've established this before in our lesson on justification, the only righteousness that God accepts is a perfect righteousness. You don't, you don't work out that kind of righteousness in your sanctification. The righteousness produced by your sanctification is not a perfect righteousness. Sanctification is not justification. The basis for your right standing before God, the basis of your salvation... It's not your sanctification, but your justification. The way in which you become more like God is not the way in which you become right with God. The way in which you become more like God is not the way in which you become right with God. Do not confuse or conflate justification and sanctification. The Bible is full of exhortations to grow in your sanctification. But do you realize that you are never once told to grow in your justification? The Bible does never, does never say, uh, be more justified. <laughs> because there's no such thing as being more justified. Because justification is not a process. It's not progressive. It is one and done. Right? It is a completed and finished work. No, so you want to grow in your sanctification... You want to become more sanctified as you walk with the Lord, but there's no such thing as becoming more justified. So that's one error. Error. Uh, thinking that uh, there's a works-based salvation in which your growth and holiness and your war against sin is the means through which you earn your salvation and make yourself right with God. But secondly, another error that arises when we confuse justification and sanctification is the error of sinless perfection. Sinless perfection that teaches... A total victory over sin that's achieved in this life. The reasoning is this. They say, well, because justification is a total forgiveness and removal of sin's guilt, then sanctification must be a total overcoming of sin in the life of a believer. And most groups that teach some form of 
of sinless perfection. They don't teach that sanctification always leads to this total victory, but they say that uh, you know, for the really spiritual Christians it does, right? Or the ones who work the hardest it does, or however they formulate that. But again, that error is a false equivocation of justification and sanctification that fails to understand them in their distinct theological categories. Your sanctification is never complete until it's completed in your glorification. You could say that sanctification is not an end in and of itself, but it's a means to an end. So we want to stay away from the idea that... um, Our sanctification is the basis upon which God accepts us. And we also want to stay away from the idea that sanctification is the means by which we are perfected. Ultimately perfected. So that's the presuppositions of sanctification. That you must rightly understand justification and regeneration, namely, in order to understand sanctification. But secondly, tonight, we want to look at the concern of sanctification. The concern of sanctification... And, and what we mean by this, this heading is simply this. What is being accomplished through the sanctification of the believer? And we've hinted at the answer to this question, but now we're going to spend the remainder of our time giving this question direct consideration. What is being accomplished through the sanctification of the believer? Well, we've already established that sanctification presupposes justification. And justification removes totally and completely the condemnation of sin from the believer, but it does not remove every trace of sin from the believer's life. The theological slogan, simul justice et peccator, simultaneously justified yet a sinner. This remaining sin and corruption is what we refer to as indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is different than besetting sin, right? Uh, Besetting sin being sins that you have a a peculiar struggle with that, that beset you. But indwelling sin is just simply the sin that remains in you even after your salvation, your conversion, your justification. The concern of sanctification is Christ likeness. To be sanctified is to be made like unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is accomplished through the mortification of indwelling sin. Why? Because Christ was sinless. So to be made more like Him, we have to deal with our sins. The aim of sanctification is to make us more like Christ by putting our sins to death and growing us in good works. Notice there's a twofold aspect. Sin must be killed. Righteousness must be raised up. Indwelling sin must be mortified. Godliness and good works must flourish. Or you could say it the other way, that the aim of sanctification is to kill our sins, thereby causing us to have greater resemblance with the sinless one. So to understand sanctification then, we must understand some things about indwelling sin. Let me give you four truths about indwelling sin. Number one, indwelling sin is present in every Christian. No Christian ever attains to a place in which they are entirely free from every trace of sin in their life. Sanctification causes us to sin less, but sanctification does not make us sinless. If you want to 
Twitter quote. There it is. Your sanctification will, will cause you to sin less, but it will not make you sinless. Why? Because indwelling sin is universally present in every Christian. All Christians share in their need for the work of sanctification in their lives. And I don't think I need to belabor that point. I think all of us here tonight are very aware of the fact that we still sin. We still have sin in our life. Secondly, I want to point this out to you about indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is sinful. You say, what do you mean by that, brother? Well, what is intended by this obvious statement is the truth that our sins are no less wicked, evil, and sinful because they're forgiven. Sometimes, whether consciously or subconsciously, we have the very hideous assumption or, or presumption that, well, because I'm a Christian and because God has forgiven me, that my sins aren't as bad as other people's sins. When the reality is that there's a sense in which the opposite is true, in which our sins as Christians have a special degree of sinfulness because we are sinning against that grace and against that forgiveness that has been extended to us in Christ. At least the sins of an unbeliever are totally consistent with his nature. He's just doing what he does as a sinner. But when you and I sin, we're sinning against who we are. We're sinning against our identity as the sons and daughters of God. So never think that just because you are justified or just because you're forgiven that your indwelling sins are not sinful or that, that God is any less offended by your sins than he is the sins of others. Our sins are a direct offense to the God that has redeemed us and sent his son to die for us. Our justification should never lead us to view indwelling sin as a trifle or a light thing. We must never take the attitude that says, well, my sins aren't a big deal as a Christian. Rather, just the opposite. May we say, because Jesus has shed his blood and died for my sins, I must, by the grace of God, put these sins to death, lest I dishonor the sacrifice of my Savior. What a great motivation to mortify our indwelling sin. To say within ourselves, by the grace of God, how can I go on living in the sin that Christ died to save me from? To make peace with our indwelling sin is to spit in the face of the Christ who gave his life for our holiness on the cross. When Jesus died at Calvary, he died for our sanctification just as much as he died for our justification. The sins of believers are just, if not more wicked, than the sins of others. And we must, by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, put them to death. They are sinful. <laughs> well, thirdly, indwelling sin causes a holy war within us. It's a war. It may be more accurate to say that the, the true agitator or the true cause of this war is the Holy Spirit at work within us as he wages a war on our sin. But the point is the same. See, sin in unbelievers flourishes without any challenge. There's no internal struggle. 
in a lost person. They live in their sins because they love their sins. But the Christian has been born again and he's been given a new heart with new affections and new desires. And the sins he once loves, he, he now hates. The sins he once loved, he hates. More importantly, there's something else that now dwells in him. Or should I say someone else who now dwells within him. That is the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit will not share an abode with sin, but he will drive it out. And he will furnish us as a holy vessel fit for his presence. God has made his abode within the heart of his redeemed child and the indwelling Holy Spirit wages a continual war on every hint of sin that remains in the believer. Some days the battle might rage more intensely than others, but that war is ongoing. There is no ceasefire because the Holy Spirit does not let up on our sins. Many Christians become troubled when they see a conflict in their own heart between that which is holy and that which is sinful. This conflict sometimes even causes them to doubt their salvation and wonder if they're really a Christian. It's one of my favorite things to counsel someone in when they come to me and they say, I'm so troubled because I, I, I have this war against sin and I hate my sin and, and, and I'm troubled that I see sin within me. Why is that a, a favorite counseling scenario? Because we get to praise God that the struggle is there. It's when there is no struggle that, that we should be concerned. It's when there is no struggle and someone is living in sin while professing Christ and they have no uh, problem, no struggle, no conflict with their sins. They, they reason, how could I be a Christian and struggle with such temptation? Well, if that's you, let me encourage you with this. That internal struggle is the evidence that the work of sanctification is taking place within you. And sometimes this struggle is not noticeable when you're first converted. Sometimes it might be years after God has saved you that this struggle really rages within you. You might go years, and, and finally after being walking with, the, walking with the Lord for years, some, some sin in your life, uh, you're convicted over it, and you think, I've been committing this sin for, for my entire Christian life. Does this mean that I'm not really saved? <laughs> no, it, it might just mean that God is, is gracious in the way He sanctifies you. And that He now has seen fit to put the finger on this particular vice, this particular sin, and it didn't bother you before, but now it does. You realize that if God were to save you and just at one, at one moment just, just show you the hideousness of all of your indwelling sin, you would just evaporate. So what does God do in sanctification? Well, He very graciously and He very lovingly reveals a little bit more of our sin and gives us a little bit more repentance, a little bit more of our sin, and a little bit more of, our, of repentance over the entirety of our Christian life, thereby growing us in the faith. Think about your own children. If you were to, if you were to jump on one of your own children and sit them down and say, okay, uh, I'm going to tell you everything you're doing wrong. Well, you, you wouldn't really encourage them to be a loving child. 
you certainly wouldn't uh, encourage them to want to obey your rules and, and conform themselves unto your household. You would just discourage them. You would just crush their spirit. God doesn't crush our spirits that way. But lovingly and graciously, He shows us a little bit more of our sin and then gives us accompanying grace and repentance to fight that battle. Even though you fall and you don't win every battle, you can still rejoice that the war is raging within you. Because that war against sin is a sure testimony that the Spirit is at work. John Murray says this, The more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. God sanctifies us by growing our love and desire to be like Jesus, therefore simultaneously growing our hatred for sin. The more you love Jesus, the more you're going to hate sin. Those two things grow together. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 17, those famous verses where Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary one to another so that you do not do the things you wish. There's this lusting, there's this war, this conflict. There is no greater display of this internal struggle in all of the Bible than Romans chapter 7. You're already there in chapter 6. Just turn the page over to chapter 7. Notice how Paul describes his Christian life. These are verses in the Bible that that don't even need to be preached. They just need to be read. Listen to Paul. Romans 7, beginning at verse 15, he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. By the way, let me say, as emphatically as I know how, Paul was a saved man when he wrote Romans 7. (laughs) And he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. Do you ever do something sinful? And you do it, and you don't even understand why you did it? Paul says, for what I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And dwelling sin. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform... What is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Paul says, I want to do good. I don't want to sin against God. But there's this, there's this evil law within me that that leads me astray, that tempts me to sin against my Lord. Then he says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from the body of death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, 
I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I don't know uh, of a clearer picture of this internal struggle of sanctification than Romans chapter 7. What a comfort it is to know that the Apostle Paul, who we could argue is perhaps the most sanctified Christian in the history of the church, was right here in this struggle with us. So, secondly, indwelling sin causes, or thirdly, indwelling sin causes a holy war within us. But fourthly, I want you to see that indwelling sin gives us a greater appreciation for our justification. See, when we see our sins for what they are, we are made vividly aware of our utter hopelessness apart from Jesus Christ. Even though our sins may trouble us, even though our falls may sadden us, we always have a cause for rejoicing. Indwelling sin should never lead us to despair because Christ has guaranteed the ultimate victory over our sin. John Murray says this, quote, There is a total difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. The regenerate in us. He said the regenerate in conflict with sin and the unregenerate complacent to sin. There's a difference between the the regenerate Christian who's in a conflict with sin, and the unregenerate lost person who is complacent with sin. He said, it is one thing for sin to live in us. It is another for us to live in sin. Christians don't live in sin. Sin might live in them, but they don't live in sin. It is one thing for the enemy to occupy the capital. It is another for his defeated hosts to harass the garrisons of the kingdom. Love that. Sin doesn't occupy your capital as a Christian. No, just the, the fledgling soldiers of Satan attack the garrisons of the Lord's kingdom that is within you. Dwelling sin should remind us that God is not done with us. He will continue the work of sanctification in us until He completes it in our glorification. And as we fight the battle with indwelling sin in our sanctification, let us never cease to praise God for our justification that put us in this holy fight. Amen. This is part one of sanctification. And in our next session, I want us to look at the agent and the means of our sanctification. Very practical look at how we are sanctified. Who sanctifies us and what does he use to do it? Who ultimately is responsible for our sanctification? Is our sanctification a work that God performs or is it a work that we achieve? And how is it practically accomplished in our lives? Well, this, this we will consider next time we meet together to discuss sanctification.